Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Welcome back to what I hope will be the final little segment boom boom on liver transplant uh, the part one can be found as post number 18 uh, to be honest though at this stage i certainly can't rule out an ongoing process somewhat akin to the great douglas adams adams increasingly inaccurately named hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy trilogy that ended up at five parts two things worth knowing about liver transplant that are easily mixed up are one hepatopulmonary syndrome and two portopulmonary hypertension First off, hepatopulmonary syndrome. This can be found in about 20% of cirrhotics and the key clinical finding is hypoxia that gets better when lying flat, otherwise known as platypnea orthodeoxia. It may well be more common in ASDs than hepatopulmonary syndrome, but it's definitely on the list. In this scenario, there is abnormal pulmonary vascular dilation allowing blood to shunt right to left within the lungs. The pathogenesis is unclear, but nitric oxide clearly plays a role. It is fairly easily diagnosed with echocardiography and agitated saline, where the bubbles can be seen to enter the left atrium within a few cycles following an injection. Now remember that agitated saline should not opacify any left-sided structures under normal circumstances. The presence of hepatopulmonary syndrome is seen by some as an indication for transplant and also is a poor prognostic marker for transplant. But the good news is that um, hepatopulmonary syndrome typically resolves with transplant. This can be contrasted with portopulmonary hypertension, where the combination of pulmonary hypertension and increased pulmonary vascular resistance is a very bad sign. To be clear, simply having pulmonary hypertension at echo or at a right heart cath is common in cirrhotics and they usually do well. But the combination of increasing pressure and resistance and failure to respond to pulmonary vasodilators is a bad thing. And in this scenario, transplant doesn't always fix the problem. Briefly, let's cover some of the infectious issues. Uh, We all get very excited about CMV, but in reality, this is often not uh, an ICU issue in the post-transplant period, and it often comes later on at the three to four week mark where hopefully the patient will have left your intensive care unit. It is particularly important where the graft is CMV positive in a recipient who has no previous signs uh, of CMV. Along with pneumocystis, uh, we can prophylax against these relatively well, and they don't tend to cause us trouble in the immediate post-operative period. The killers in the ICU are generally going to be bacterial, and these days it's going to be gram-positives causing more damage than the gram-negatives. Invasive fungal disease can be a big issue, and the echinocandins and amphotericin have been commonly used for that. Expect high rates of multidrug-resistant organisms, or MDROs, given that most chronic liver disease patients are frequent flyers to hospitals and frequent receivers of broad-spectrum antibiotics. So an alphabet soup of VRE and ESBL is often plastered in multicoloured stickers over the front of their chart. Final point on immunosuppression, expect some steroids to be given early um, with a tacrolimus chaser. Uh, that is often withheld a few days now due to the joys of basiliximab, allowing a delayed introduction and less chance of renal injury. Note the absence of an anti-metabolite agent, um, which is commonly seen um, in combination with tacrolimus and steroids in the heart and lung transplant population, but it seems that you do not need to use those quite so much for the liver transplant patients. Some useful references here, life and fasting post on portopulmonary hypertension, um, Durian Physiology has a lovely post on it, and O's Manual Chapter 103 forms the majority of the structure for this post. Until next time.